Welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast. Visit us at voiceforisrael.com and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other fine podcasting services. I'm your host, Peter Reitzes, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Our guest today is Rabbi Daniel Graber of Beth El Synagogue in Durham, North Carolina. Rabbi Graber is currently teaching a 10-part virtual class titled Together and Apart, The Future of Jewish Peoplehood, presented by the prestigious Shalom Hartman Institute and sponsored by the Jewish Federation of Durham and Chapel Hill, Beth El Synagogue, Kehillah Synagogue, and Judea Reform Congregation. This important course will run from October 22, 2020 through April 15, 2021. See our show notes at voiceforisrael.com to find the registration link. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Rabbi Graber. Thank you. Your 10-part course, Together and Apart, the future of Jewish peoplehood is set to tackle many complex issues, such as the Israeli nation-state law, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, nationalism, ultranationalism, fascism, and so much more. Who is your course for, and what do you hope to achieve? So the course is really for anybody in the Durham, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, in the Triangle community, uh, or those who want to join us from you know farther. Uh, you know, from outside the community in this age of Zoom, anybody can can join us. Anybody who cares about Israel um, and who cares about the relationship between the American Jewish community um, and the Jewish community in Israel and the state of Israel. Um, you know, I think I started teaching the Hartman curriculum a number of years ago. In when I found that the discourse around Israel was very polarized and it was being dominated by some of the loudest voices, uh, either on the left or on the right. And when the discourse seemed to me and, and what I'd heard from a number of people in the community is that, uh, the discourse was more focused on sort of reading people out of the community um, rather than reading them in. And my goal with all of the Hartman you know, learning has been to um, bring the discourse in our community around Israel um, back to the center um, to point out the ways in which we have a lot more in common than that uh, than, than we disagree about, um, to point out the ways that the, the philosophy of the Hartman curriculum is, is to have it be a values based conversation where, um, what we're doing is we're learning about Jewish values and looking at how different values come into conflict one with the other. Um, and that, um, but, uh, but, um, almost always have a basis in the Jewish tradition. And therefore we can, um, we can agree to disagree, but still respect um, the people who we are in community with. Um, and I think, you know, one, one other piece that I'll add in specific about this course, uh, this course is called together and apart the future of Jewish peoplehood. And it is based, you know, the opening, uh, you know, the opening, uh, session of the course 
is entitled From No Homes to Two Homes. And it sort of uh, traces this idea that the Jewish people, after the destruction of the temple, um, after the fall of the, uh, you know, of, of the first of the monarchy and, uh, you know, under King David, have not had a home um, really in after thousands of years in diaspora. Um, with the birth of the state of Israel, uh, you know, Israel was seen as the one home for the Jewish people um, and as an answer to uh, to the question of how can the Jewish people be safe and how can we be normal and how how can we be exceptional uh, to all three of those questions. And that where we've arrived is really a place of having two homes. That the American, the, the Jewish experience in America um, is one where people feel a tremendous sense of at-homeness in America and in North America and a sense of at-homeness, obviously, in, in Israel as well. And what does it mean for the Jewish people to have um, two homes? And so the, the, the other thing which I'll just throw out there um, is I, I would love to have um, specifically Israelis who are living in America um, as part of the American Jewish community, uh, part of this course, because, uh, I, you know, I think that that perspective um, is is really important. And it's and it's important for us all to begin to understand uh, each other as best as we can. So I'm smiling because you've put so many valuable things on the table. I love that you're bringing back the middle, the moderate views. We have a wonderful Israeli family who lives down the street from me in Chapel Hill. And I saw them at a holiday party this year. And I mentioned that I'm on the board of Voice for Israel of North Carolina. And they sort of looked at me and they said, why? Why is that important to you? And I know that Voice for Israel has a lot of local Israelis who follow us. So hopefully they'll hear this interview with you and they'll check out and engage with your course. Yeah. And, I, and that I appreciate that. And that reaction isn't surprising to me. And I say this really not critically at all. I think that a lot of times when we uh, grow up in a situation we're used to or you know, uh, things are sort of second nature for us and we can be given the gift of seeing either, you know, their importance or seeing them in a new way um, from people who uh, haven't grown up, you know, for example, uh, in Israel. And I think that the, the, the centrality of Israel for many American Jews sometimes is very surprising uh, for, for Israeli Jews um, who, you know, value Israel because it's their country and because it's their home and, and, uh, and they know the streets and the, and the mountains and the, um, and the falafel places. Um, but, you know, haven't necessarily thought about what is the place of Israel, uh, for the rest of the Jewish people. Mm. Great, great points. Since your Shalom Hartman course was announced, the United States has helped broker historic normalization deals between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. And just last week, it was announced that Israel and Lebanon are in direct talks. Um, and add to that, that, that there's a stunning new poll that shows that a majority of Saudi Arabians are receptive to normalization with Israel. And now, of course, you also have Saudi Arabia 
allowing Israeli planes to fly into their airspace. And it's been uh, assumed by many that Saudi Arabia gave their blessing to Bahrain and the UAE making normalization deals with Israel. So with all of this good news, how might this widening of normalization of ties between Israel and Middle East countries affect the discourse around Israel and what may happen next in Middle East peace? I think one hope that I have is that it will uh, it, it, it will add to the discourse a sense of humility <laughs> because, uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of very strong opinions about what is going to bring about peace and what the right direction is to go. And I think if the Middle East has shown us anything, it is that uh, there's always a surprise waiting around the corner. And peace often comes in interesting ways. Um, you know, the the uh, normalization with two Arab, uh, Sunni Arab countries and and, and some of the other uh, steps that you're talking about, these are very, very significant um, achievements. I think it's important to point out that the agreement has vast support in the United States Congress. I think it was just today or yesterday that 91 senators and 372 representatives of Congress, um, including representatives Butterfield and Price, um, who are more left-leaning Democrats um, who represent this area, um, all voted uh, in favor in a bipartisan resolution, which, as everybody who follows American politics knows, is incredibly difficult and incredibly rare. But um, but all of these uh, members of Congress voted uh, in favor of a resolution celebrating um, celebrating the normalization agreement, and um, and so I think it's you know for for um, it, it's important. I hope that it adds some humility uh, to you know to to our conversations about Israel and reminds us that um, sometimes surprising things uh, happen in ways that we don't under, uh, expect or understand. Um, I do also think that, uh, you know, some people will, you know, and there's a lot to celebrate here. And there's also a lot to, uh, for many people, I think, uh, you know, to be cautious of, um, because Israel's alliances with Sunni countries, um, you know, many of these Sunni countries for many years were not only anti-Israel, but also they are uh, dictatorships and have questionable human rights records. Um, and, uh, and, and don't necessarily share the democratic values and some of the other values, uh, Western values that are part of the state of Israel. And, and, and for some, you know, that will be, it will challenge the discourse around Israel, um, because they want to make sure that Israel doesn't lose its moral center and, 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 uh, and, and doesn't lose its commitment also to make, uh, to make peace with the Palestinians, um, you know, when and if that's possible. Uh, so I, you know, as always, things are complicated, um, but I do hope that it, uh, I hope that it's something that, that people can celebrate. And when people, uh, it, you know, if, if people raise concerns, you know, for example, about the human rights records of, of, of Saudi Arabia or about the continuing question of, um, you know, of, uh, 
of the Palestinians, that those questions can be heard um, as legit as continuing to be legitimate questions um, that are part of the discourse around Israel. Those are excellent, excellent points. I dare say moderate points, and I love hearing it. I really appreciate it. I, I will say to you and the listeners that I miss the middle. Uh, I miss it so much, and I am warmed um, what you just shared about our elected representatives who um, spoke up for peace. So that is just wonderful. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. I'm your host, Peter Reitzes, here with Rabbi Daniel Graber in Durham, North Carolina at Bethel Synagogue. And uh, in your course on March 7th, you are scheduled to discuss the accusation and dilemma of dual loyalties. Uh, Please explain to us what is meant by dual loyalties and how will you be discussing this topic? So... To understand dual loyalties, we want to separate that from uh, from multiple loyalties uh, is probably a good way to do it. We all have multiple loyalties uh, because we have multiple identities. I can be loyal to my family um, and be loyal. I can be loyal to my children and be loyal to my spouse. And I can be loyal to my friends and I can be loyal to my local, uh, you know, to, to, to my local synagogue and loyal to, uh, to local churches in a different way. And I can be loyal to my country. And all of these things can stand alongside each other because, again, each one of us contains uh, multitudes, as the poet once said. Each one of us um, has many commitments and um, and and those things uh, need not conflict. Dual loyalty is an age-old accusation against the Jewish people that our commitments to the Jewish people undermine our commitments to the country in which we find ourselves. And I say it's age old because the truth is, is that the very first example of this dual loyalty accusation is in the book of Exodus. And the very first time that the word um, that the word people is used about the Jewish people is actually used not, it's not something we say about ourselves, but it's actually used by Pharaoh um, about us. And it's a way of othering the Jewish people. And Pharaoh is concerned that the Jewish people in the end are going to rise up um, and, and leave the land if it comes to war. Now, in the end, it was Pharaoh's accusation that actually created uh, the circumstances that made it necessary for uh you know for for god to rescue uh the jewish people but um but the 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 accusation of dual loyalty uh, has followed the jewish people um where you know i think wherever we are and in some ways is has been sharpened by modernity 
when um, modern nation states offer the offer Jews a greater sense of equality and citizenship um, than has been possible in many other um, in many other places. And the question is, you know, to what extent um, does and and it's it's also been accentuated not only by modernity but obviously by the existence of the modern state of Israel, because now there is um, another uh, there is a state in the family of nations um, that um, describes itself as the state of the Jewish people around the world. Um, and so the, I think the question that we're going to try to tease out is, uh, you know, what are the ways in which we as Jews can have a commitment to America and, um, and to being American citizens and calling this place home? Um, and how do those commitments to, uh, to America sit alongside our commitments to Zionism? Uh, we're going to look at the thinking, particularly uh, of, of Louis Brandeis, who was a, uh, a, a justice on the Supreme Court in the early 20th century, who was the first one to really articulate that these commitments don't need to be conflicting, but actually that um, in being committed to Zionism, uh, we actually deepen our own commitment to America. And, and our and American citizenship. And, you know, again, that dual loyalty, uh, you know, that loyalties rather than being dual and conflicting can actually stand alongside each other, can complement each other and make us stronger citizens um, of, of America and, uh, and, and stronger uh, Jews with a stronger sense of peoplehood as well. Sounds like a really interesting conversation. Looking forward to it. Um, so I've got a bit of a long question to ask you, and we're going to put up links at voiceforisrael.com in the show notes so people can check out the survey I'm about to mention. Um, a recent survey of young adults between the ages of 18 to 39 has found that, quote, almost two-thirds of young American adults do not know that six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust, and more than one in ten believe Jews caused the Holocaust. Uh, almost 25% of the respondents reported that the Holocaust was a myth or had been exaggerated or they weren't sure. Um, the reason I bring this up to you now, Rabbi Graber, is because recently in our triangle area of North Carolina, there has been a passionate and even heated discussion around the use of the term concentration camps. And some immigrant rights activists, including some local Jewish activists, have been describing immigration detention facilities here in the United States as concentration camps. Um, this has offended many local Jews, including myself, because it appears to compare the United States to Nazi Germany. Uh, what is your view on this issue? Uh, very complicated question. I, I appreciate the, the thoughtfulness of it. I want to say first that, you know, the, the first part of your question highlights how desperately important Holocaust education continues to be. Ignorance of the Holocaust uh, is both uh, inexcusable and terribly frightening. And 
I want to just highlight uh, a member of Bethel, Sharon Halperin, who is the head of the Center for Holocaust Education and a Holocaust Speakers Bureau in North Carolina, who's done, uh, continues to do extremely important work. And I've also been very gratified that uh, Holocaust education has become part of the nationwide curriculum and, and, and Governor Cooper, who signed legislation to have it be part of the of North Carolina's educational curriculum. And, um, and uh, because the, if we do not continue to tell this story, um, it is going to be forgotten. It's going to be uh, worse than forgotten. It's going to be uh, denied. It's going to be manipulated. And, uh, and, and we have just fidelity to truth and to the memory of all those who have died um, necessitates that. And so I'm, you know, I'm grateful for all of their work, and and it just reminds me how important this is. Um, you know, the question about comparisons, I think, is um, it, it is uh, can be framed in the following way. Um, as a historical note, I think it's important that people know that the term concentration camp. Uh, did not originate with with the Nazis. Um, it was a term that was invented by a Spanish official to paper over his relocation of millions of rural families um, into garrison towns where they would starve during Cuba's 1895 War of Independence. Um, that's that's where the origin of the term comes from. Um, obviously. It is a term that um, conjures up the, the Holocaust and its deployment in, uh, to describe other things has become much more fraught. And the way I would frame this is that, you know, Holocaust memory of the Holocaust needs to hold two truths that can feel conflicting, um, but I, I don't. I don't believe they are. Um, but it needs to hold two truths alongside each other. One of them is that the is the uniqueness of the Holocaust. Not only because it happened to the Jewish people, and not only because it happened at a certain time, but there historically has not been another um, state-sponsored attempted genocide um, and state-sponsored mass murder of, uh, you know, of, of another people. And, um, and, and th that should not be forgotten. The, the Jewishness, the fact that it happened to Jews um, should not be forgotten the fact that it was um, th that it was a genocide that it happened. Of course, there were many other victims of the Holocaust, but Jews were targeted because they were Jews, and and the Jewish question was seen as a problem to be to be solved only by mass murder because of the uh, you know Jews were understood to be polluting the gene pool, and um, and so uh, you know. The uniqueness of the Holocaust should not be diminished or forgotten, and it can't be trivialized with uh, with sloppy comparisons. And 
The second truth that needs to sit alongside this is that the uh, teaching, one of the reasons that we teach about the Holocaust is not only to prevent another Holocaust from happening to the Jewish people, but also to prevent other acts of genocide and other terrible, uh, you know, uh, tragedies. The U.S. Holocaust Memorial um, teaches that the Holocaust was preventable um, and that by heeding warning signs and taking early action, we can do things to save people. And there's actually a prevention of genocide center at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial. And the purpose of which is to um, is to try to prevent uh, what happened to the Jews of of Europe in the 1930s and 40s from happening not only to other Jews, but also anywhere around the world. And so I think that um, on the one hand, you have to preserve the uniqueness of Holocaust memory and we, I think we're also doing a disservice to the Holocaust by um, never making any comparisons, uh, at, you know, whatsoever. I'll say one last thing about the concentrate, you know, about the, in terms of the immigration detention facilities um, in, in the United States. Um, I think that uh, it was Deborah Lipstadt who put this well. Uh, those the the detention facilities are wrong. They're they are not a moral, not an appropriate uh, response or resolution to the serious immigration questions that America faces. And one, you know, Lipstadt, I believe, you know, said that the use of the term or the comparison to the Holocaust is inappropriate. I think that that's, uh, you know, I think that that's true, but it, it should not distract us from the, from being able to see and to say that the detention camps are wrong and are, are morally, uh, just inappropriate for a good country like the United States. You know, this thought just popped in my head, so I hope you don't mind me sharing it with you because I'm listening closely to what you just said, and it's really impacted me. And what I've the realization I've just had is that I, I know people personally who are activists who have visited detention centers in the in the United States, and they'll say to me, Peter, it's so bad. It's so bad. You would never want to see how human beings are treated. And, you know, I'm a father. I, I don't, I want only the best for my family and for everyone else's family. And when I hear fellow Jews, when I hear Jewish activists compare detention centers to, to concentration camps, I feel like they're pushing me out of the conversation. I feel like I'm not saying they're doing it intentionally, but I feel like their language is trivializing the Holocaust and it's pushing me out of the conversation. Um, does that make sense to you? It, it does. And 
lovingly, you know, we, we know each other and go, go back a while. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm a, I'm a liberal in the classical sense. And, and what I mean by that is that universities, and this is a whole other conversation, but universities as, uh, as, as ideally conceived, are liberal places where um, one is exposed to ideas and thoughts and um, and language that's different than one believes. And there's almost an expectation that in the course of entering the dialogue and entering the conversation, you uh, you have to keep yourself in the conversation, even when it gets a little uncomfortable and, 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 and continue to tease things out. And so the, the coaching I would give you, not that you asked me for it, but I hope it's okay that I offer, uh, the coaching I would give to you is don't let yourself be pushed out of the conversation, right? Um, and it's okay to interrogate the use of that term and to say, look, what are the pieces here that are appropriate, right? And I would say, again, you know, the term concentration came back, you know, uh, before it, before it referred to the Nazis, historically referred to, you know, to, to something else. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't only have to, you know, refer to, uh, to what happened. And yet, right, how do we make sure that in, in deploying this term in conversation, we're not, you know, we're not trivializing, right? And I think, in, in the course of that dialogue and back and forth, hopefully people can come to a place of, you know, play, a place of deeper understanding. I hear that it's, that it's uncomfortable. There is a reasonable question, right, to be, to be answered, which is, hey, wait a minute. If you're, you know, if you, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial itself says we learn about the Holocaust to prevent future, you know, f- future tragedies, um, so you can't say that that's totally off limits either, right? Hmm. And 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 you know I, I think that my commitment, you know, I'm a passionate moderate, is that um, it, is that there's much much more agreement there than disagreement, and we all need to push ourselves to continue to be part of the conversation. Yes, uh, you bring up great points, and I should have been clear that. Um, so I'm not going to say the name of any organizations involved, but I have signed up and shown up for these conversations. And I do politely push back. And to some extent, I, I think I've really been heard at times. I, I am concerned about our Jewish community. And when we see terms like concentration camps used to describe detention centers in the U.S., I do feel like the social justice activists are taking a stand with language when it's only going to push people out of the work they're trying to do. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself. So let me close out this part of the conversation by just reading you something briefly. And if you'd like to respond, that would be great. I'm not going to tell you who wrote this, but it's a mutual friend of ours. He'd probably say it's okay to use his name, but I'm not going to. And he he wrote, "I, I would like to focus on what the concentration camps were. They were death camps. No Jew was assumed to survive more than three months at a Nazi slave labor camp or a concentration camp. Uh, he, he went on to write, I do not see gas chambers or gallows or a crematoria at a detention center. Uh, I do not read 
of executions at a detention center. However appalling the detention centers may be, they are not designed to accommodate the deaths of millions. Um, And I find that to be a very reasonable response and one that I agree with very strongly. Am I wrong to agree with that? Or do you agree with it differently? Or or what are your thoughts on it? I don't think you're wrong to agree with it uh, at all. And I think it it shows the problem of the, you know, uh, it shows the problem of Holocaust comparisons. Um, and, and what the person wrote is exactly correct. And it's a very, very important dis- uh, distinction. I think that, you know, if I can try to what a good exercise, and this is based upon uh, the Talmud about Hillel and Shammai, uh, Hillel's words are ultimately accepted because they try to, uh, because they, they state other people's opinions first. Okay. And so if I, if I try to take that stance and say, okay, what is somebody who's making the Holocaust comparison, um, have in mind? I think that what they're, number one, they may be saying that the, you know, the term concentration camp, as I've said, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't only apply, you know, to the Holocaust, but also they're trying to navigate um, how quickly can one reality become another reality? And, you know, Peter, I will say to you, you know, I don't know. What, what I do know is that many, many German Jews thought that they were living in a democratic, enlightened society that could never become Nazi Germany. And they, you know, I don't know if you've read the book, the Black Swan, um, but it, it's a it's a very interesting book. I'm not going to remember the author right now, but he he gives an example about how history works, and he says we think that history cra- changes gradually, but the way that history actually works is like the chicken who is in you know that who, who's in the you know the uh, the chicken coop or the hen house or whatever, and is being fed every morning and wakes up every morning and says, "Wow, I have great life. I don't have to do anything." And somebody brings me, uh, you know, br- brings me food and change, you know, cleans out, you know, uh, whatever is underneath me. I have a great life until the the next morning when their head gets cut off, right? And the author of the Black Swan argues that's actually how change works. That's how history unfolds. We don't know when massive changes are going to take place, um, but they do happen fast, not really over time. And I think that when somebody makes that argument, what they're trying to do is say, this is concerning to me. Um, I'm not saying it's the same thing, right? I don't think, you know, and, and if they were saying, hey, this is the exact same thing, I, you know, I would, you know, they need to be told they're wrong because historically they're wrong. Um, and yet they're also trying to say, um, I, I want the Holocaust, uh, the memory of the Holocaust to, uh, you know, to be a, a force for preventing future tragedies. And I'm concerned that we're moving in that direction. Um, and I want us to put the brakes on that. Um, now, w- I think you can have good, vehement disagreement about is what is the right way to have that conversation? And again, Deborah Lipstadt says, you know what? Um, 
you can say that it's wrong without making the comparison. Um, and, 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 you know, that's that, you know, she makes that argument. And I think that there's a lot of sense to that. But I don't think that the people who are making that argument are coming from it of a place of wanting to trivialize the Holocaust, um, nor are they coming from it a place of wanting to, um, uh, you know, of, of uh, well, uh, let me just, you know, leave it there. I don't think they're, they're trying to diminish the, the memory of the Holocaust or the seriousness of what happened. Your last point was so important, and it made me think um, – I, I don't know if they're trying to trivialize the Holocaust. I would hope not. And perhaps, unfortunately, the Holocaust has already been trivialized to the point that the person does not even know it. And, and it, it's awful when I am about to say this one person said, but a local activist you know, put on public media that she strongly implied that the Obama administration was worse than the Nazis. And that person uses the term concentration camps to describe detention centers. And that's only one person. But it makes me think, has the Holocaust already been trivialized so much in this person's life that they don't, that they would say something or imply something as absurd as the Obama administration was worse than the Nazi regime, because it's, uh, that's just crazy to me. Um, and I, I'm sorry, like, uh, please, I'll let you get the last comment and then we'll move on. No, look I, look, I think that I'll go back to where we started, which is that education, um, Holocaust education is desperately, desperately important because it is, you know, for someone to say that, betrays, I think, uh, belies a sense of ignorance um, that, uh, you know, that I think education, uh, it just points out the importance of that. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Daniel Graber. We're talking about his exciting 10-part virtual course, Together and Apart, the Future of Jewish Peoplehood. So on February 7th, you're scheduled to discuss the topic, anti-Semitism as a divisive force and anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So could you please give the listeners just a taste of how you will be discussing these complicated topics? Well, let me say a couple of things about the Hartman course. Fortunately, uh, you know, part of the reason that I value the curriculum so much is that people will be hearing from me and, and I certainly am a, a guide and a teacher as the course goes on, but they'll also be hearing from incredible scholars at the Hartman Institute. Um, and especially with things that are as complicated as this, I, I'm grateful to, um, to be able to share in the learning with, uh, scholars such as, uh, Yossi Klein. Levy and Michal Bitan and uh, Yehuda Kurtzer and uh, Daniel Hartman and Tal Becker and others. Uh, for this topic, um, I think you know part of the focus will be on how anti-Semitism used to actually be uh, not certainly not something we hoped for, but it was something that we could all agree upon, and that in some ways united uh, certainly the American Jewish community. And, uh, and, uh, in sort of a coming together to, um, to respond and to, to protect and defend, uh, our fellow Jews. And unfortunately, I think anti-Semitism 
has become a uh, that unity has become a casualty of the partisan age in which we live, where um, many acts of anti-Semitism are mobilized or uh, treated as opportunities to, um, uh, you know, to to explain why one side or the other in the American political landscape is wrong and how our side is correct. And, um, and that's, that's just a shift um, that we'll be looking at more closely as to why that's the case and, and perhaps, uh, you know, how, how we can um, heal some of that uh, partisanship that, that plagues America and that, uh, and and the plagues the American Jewish community as well. The other topic that we're going to talk about is the is the the very tricky line between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Uh, we were speaking, you know, for all of these things. I think uh, somebody once said that we need, you know, the word anti-Semitism is a blunt instrument. Uh, that there's anti-Semitism of the gas chambers and there's anti-Semitism of the country club. And the fact that we use the same word to describe those two phenomena, uh, is a problem because it's, it's just not, it's a word that, that, uh, does not dis- uh, describe in enough detail, uh, what anti-Semitism is and the many different gradations of it. Um, there's a line between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Um, Anti-Zionism, uh, you know, comes, I would say, in a couple of, of different forms. One of, uh, one of them is, uh, a, is, is criticism of the state of Israel, um, which I would not call criticism of the state of Israel anti-Zionism. I would just call it criticism of the state of Israel that can be very, very Jewish. And, um, if you read, if you read the, the pages of, of Haaretz, it seems like an Israeli national sport itself. Um, and it certainly doesn't make yes. oneself, it certainly doesn't make one, um, anti-Semitic in any, in any way. Um, and, and, and yet there is some anti-Zionism, um, that can become anti-Semitic. Um, and, you know, when Israel is sort of made into a symbol uh, one of the ways I, I, I like to test this is to say, you know, is if, if Israel is completely evil and the Palestinians are completely innocent, um, or completely good and Israel is completely, um, guilty, that to me is sort of a red flag that one has crossed the line from criticism to, um, to the territory of anti-Semitism. And in the same way as Jews Antisemitism holds Jews responsible for many wild and, and, uh, and, and terrible things. Uh, anti-Zionism sometimes, uh, does, uh, does that, uh, you know, Israel becomes the, the, the Jew of the nations, of the community of nations. And that's, um, and that's a problem as well. And I think trying to tease out that distinction, um, within the American Jewish community, um, is, is an important one. Let me ask you one last question 
about your course. And then I want to ask you one final question for this wonderful recording. Um, so, well, actually, I don't know if you're going to cover this in your course, but I want to ask anyway. <laughs> so okay. Zionists, I know, including myself, support black lives. We support civil rights and human rights. However, many Zionists, including myself, are understandably concerned that in 2016, the movement for black lives specifically targeted Israel in its platform. So how do you consider these issues and how concerned should we be that Israel has been targeted by some of the leadership in the Black Lives Matter movement? I think the following. Uh, I share your concern about the movement platform. Uh, and and the, I've expressed those concerns publicly and and, uh, and and many people have as well. And I think it's I think it's justified concern. I do think that the it's important for us as Jews to understand that the statement "Black Lives Matter," especially over the past six months, has evolved into something that is far larger than the movement uh, from two thousand, and certainly than the than the platform that was addressed in 2016. At this point, the the words Black Lives Matter, which is not only on street signs, but is on the courts of NBA basketball teams and uh, and and in you know just is sort of a, a found so many places in our society, has become a statement of solidarity with the black community. That is, in my mind, very removed from the, you know, the movement, which I think was a much smaller movement, um, and certainly from the, from the platform. Uh, this statement of solidarity, um, you know, I, I think what I would say is just because the movement and that platform was wrong and problematic, and, and I have no problem saying that, it doesn't mean that the statement that Black Lives Matter uh, isn't right. Uh, black lives do matter. And saying so is an acknowledgement, you know, rather than just saying, you know, all lives matter, saying black lives matter is an acknowledgement that the United States has a deeply flawed and problematic history in its treatment of the black community that continues. And that moments, it, it's the ability to say um, that when you watch video of a white police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, or when you hear the story of Breonna Taylor, that you're, you're, that you're witnessing profound injustice and that we as Jews need to say so not just as a matter of strategy so that when we're oppressed that other people will stand up for us although you know I will say that I'm it's it's been deeply moving to me on a local level that when Jews were targets of violence after Pittsburgh and uh and after uh Poway and San Diego and other times that uh, our black brothers and sisters and our christian black brothers and sisters have stood up with us but we need to say so not merely 
for strategic purposes, but because morally we are called as Jews to acknowledge the profound evil and unmitigated evil that is racism and that continues in the United States. And, you know, the more that one learns about uh, the, the evils of slavery, uh, I'm reading right now a book called Cast that I commend to your readers. It's by Isabel Wilkerson, that where she describes how when the Nazis were learning and thinking about their the Nuremberg laws and 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 the how to essentially set up the Nazi state and and uh, legislation against Jews based upon based on genetics, they literally looked at the American system. They looked at at the laws that existed in the South of the United States, and you know the 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 connection was startling to me, and just reinforced how the situation of our fellow Americans. You know, we as Jewish Americans, I think, have an obligation to um, you know to to hopefully rebuild what was what was once a, a, a very strong and and good coalition um, that was working to try to achieve equality in the United States. Many fine points uh, you just brought up. I'll say briefly that uh, after George Floyd's tragic murder, um, it I had some conversations with colleagues, uh, people of color, and it became very clear to me over the weeks and months that people talking about Black Lives Matter and their pain as people of color had nothing to do with Israel. And so what I'm left thinking, and please, I'd love to hear your feedback, is that the Black Lives Matter movement was attempted to be hijacked by a few leaders to include anti-Israel propaganda or an anti-Israel agenda. And then you meet people or, you know, meet, you talk to people, you know, who are people of color and there's so much pain and they want to be heard and they want to share their pain. And it has nothing to do with Israel. And I find it, um, well, I just, by listening, it seems pretty clear to me that the people of color I know are not talking about Israel when they talk about Black Lives Matter. Do you have anything to say to that? I think that's exactly right. I think that, um, and, and I think that, you know, I, I will say that in conversations, you know, we started this conversation uh, or, or at some point spoke about Holocaust education and how important it is. And as Jews, we feel that it's very important that the world hear about the oppression and the you know, not just oppression, but the the attempted genocide of our people. And I think that we, uh, I, I think that we owe a um, owe ourselves and owe the black community to listen with an open heart. Um, that in listening to other people's pain, we don't diminish ourselves; we lift ourselves up even more. And 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 that if we enter these conversations trying to make um trying to make that conversation about us uh, frankly i think it's self-centered and will not be well received 
um, and doesn't, you know, uh, I, I don't, you know, strategically, I think it's a mistake. And I also think that spiritually we, we, we are not diminished. We are, um, I think our faith and our commitment to the Jewish people should be deepened by expanding our hearts and learning more and being able to feel more deeply um, the pain of that another people continue to, um, you know, continue to carry. And, you know, for someone like Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, you know, the, 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 the fight against, uh, you know, uh, discrimination, the fight for civil rights was not at the expense of his Judaism. It was, it was a deepening of his, of his, uh, commitments. And, and I, my own experiences, I found that, um, to be the case as well. And, and I have found that, um, I'll just end with this, you know, before coronavirus, we had a plan. Uh, a very good friend of mine um, is Bishop Ronald Gopi. He's a, a wonderful leader of the River Church here in Durham. He and I have had many dialogues and public conversations. We traveled to Israel together. And our hope was our was for our synagogue and their church to travel together to Washington, D.C., where we would spend one afternoon at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and another afternoon at the African-American History Museum. And while we were not able to bring that dream to its fruition in, in May because of the coronavirus, uh, we still want to do that. And we, we want to deepen, we want to create more and more opportunities um, for us to know and understand each other's history and for us to, um, you know, just be together in community. You know, and, and I think it's, I hope that it's a good model for, uh, for Jewish communities and African-American communities everywhere. Yeah, it sure is. And I'll share with you and the listeners that many of us board members of Voice for Israel attended a service at Pastor Godby's church and you were speaking uh, that night. And it was a beautiful, wonderful services. And we made some great connections and several board members of Voice for Israel are, are always quoting the, the good pastor. So you keep very good company, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will agree with you only because Bishop Godby is, is a, is a person who, uh, and, a, and a preacher um, and a man of faith who is about all that's right um, in the world. And uh, I feel grateful for my friendship and, and whatever work we get to do together. Uh, thank you so much. And I know you have to jump. I just wanted to end by saying right as we were going on air, I got an email about another course you're offering. And I didn't know you were offering it. It's titled Jewish Values in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict for Teens. And that course is for Midrashah in our local area. And I just want to say thank you. I, it's so awesome that you're doing that. Is there anything you'd like to say about the second course be, before you have to jump? A few years ago, I taught this course. It was the first Hartman course that we offered in the community. And I'm offering it this year to, in an abbreviated fashion, to our teens because I want to help our teens to be better prepared for the Israel conversation that they're going to encounter on campus. And my, as, as is my hope with all of the Hartman materials and all of my teaching, 
I'm not here trying to persuade people, uh, you know, to have this or that political view. But I think that the um, the ignorance about Israel and about the conflict is uh, is something that we all need to uh, try to uh, to fight against through education and helping our kids to be better prepared um, as Jews and certainly as Jews who will be on campus and part of a tumultuous campus conversation. Thank you for the work you do. And thank you, Rabbi Graber, for joining us today on the Voice for Israel podcast. Thank you. Thank you.